0: We are looking at Ezra, and we're not going to look at the book of Ezra. You would think, well, this is a series about Ezra, the priest who opened the book, but we're really not going to be studying through the book of Ezra, because it would be a lot longer than four weeks if we did that. But this is really only about one chapter in the book of Nehemiah. Ezra and Nehemiah really should be one book, because it was written, both were written by Ezra, and it's really a continuation of the same history. And so we're going to look at one chapter in Nehemiah chapter 8, where Ezra comes and brings the law of God to the people of God, and the book of the law is read, God's word is read. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at, it's, this, this is a four-part series on the necessity, on the power, on, on the beauty of God's Word and why we need it here today. So that's what we're going to look at. So before we get into this, let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the privilege of preaching your Word. I thank you for the privilege of pastoring your people here at Living Word. And God, I pray that you'd help me. Lord, your Word says that it's not by might, not by power, but by your Spirit. And Lord, I ask that you would help me to open my mouth, to preach the Word, and to exalt Christ. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I want to read a quote to you by a Danish, a Danish philosopher. His name is Soren Kier- Kierkegaard. I don't think I've ever quoted from a Danish philosopher at Living Word Church or anywhere. Listen to this. This will, this will shake you up. The matter is quite simple. The Bible is very easy to understand. But we Christians are a bunch of scheming swindlers. You feel good about yourself? (laughs) We pretend to be unable to understand it because we know very well that the minute we understand, we are obliged to act accordingly. Take any words in the New Testament and forget everything except pledging yourself to act accordingly. My God, you will say, if I do that, my whole life will be ruined. How would I ever get on in the world? Wow. Isn't that kind of sobering? You read that quote? You know, this is kind of the reality for us from time to time in our life when it comes to God's word. Sometimes we feel like we really can't understand it and, and, and there's too much mystery and, and I can't understand God's word. So we isolate ourselves from God's word and we stay away from God's word and we don't get to reap the benefits of, of God's word in our life because we feel like we really can't understand it. But a lot of times it's because we shy away from the word because of what we do understand and so this this message this this series on Ezra this series highlighting Nehemiah 8 when the priest Ezra comes with the law of God and he opens it in front of the people of God and he reads it for six hours straight to God's people What this is all about, it's about the story of humanity and the story of God's people. It's about the story of God's people and how we all have a tendency to push ourselves away from the truth of God's word. Even as believers, we all have that tendency to disconnect ourselves from the very source of our very life as a Christian. The very source of our life physically even. God sustains us through his word. And so this is what this series is going to be about. This series is about revival. This series is about revival. What we will look at in Nehemiah 8 is a revival. It is a revival of God's people. You know, only God's people can be revived. That's what revival is. Revival is about God's people waking up. It's not about the world waking up. They're dead, spiritually dead, they don't know Christ. Revival, they need an awakening. Christians who have isolated themselves from the only source of truth in their life and have faced the consequences of that isolation from God's word, and they drift off into things that they should not drift off into, they need revival. They need to be revived in their spiritual life. And this is what this book is about. It's about revival. And I want you to know I want revival. I want revival in my life. I want revival in this church. I want revival in the churches in this community. And i tell you why I want revival. I want revival because I want to see the lost born again. Because, yes. Because churches that disconnect themselves from the truth of God's word are made up of people who disconnect themselves from the truth of God's word. And if we do that ever in our life, then we disconnect ourselves from the ability to reach the lost. And that is the truth. We are only going to be as powerful as we are connected to God's word. And that is the heart of what this series is about in Nehemiah 8. And so I want to give us a little history of the nation of Israel as we go leading up to Nehemiah 8. I'm not just going to start in Nehemiah 8 here, but we're going to get some history of Israel. And how many of you know the history of the nation of Israel is like our history in, as humanity? And the history of the nation of Israel is a history of loving God, serving God, and being exiled from God. Loving God, serving God, obeying his commandments, and then, and then, and then re, uh, uh, be, be becoming complacent and rejecting God's commands and suffering the consequences of that rejection. And we see it played out throughout their history. And, and a highlight of that history is whenever Israel, the nation of Israel, as we see in Scripture in the Old Testament, was in exile, was in slavery from their homeland, in slavery within, in Egypt. And what did God do? God raised up a deliverer. God raised up Moses and Moses came and spoke to Pharaoh and God delivered the nation of Israel. And, but what happened to the nation of Israel after they got delivered from exile? They got complacent. They, they rejected God's word and his ways and they complained and they wandered in the, in the wilderness for 40 years. That original generation that was delivered out of Egyptian slavery wandered in the wilderness for 40 years and that original generation did not make it into the promised land. It wasn't until the Joshua generation was was raised up. Joshua was raised up in a whole nother generation. Moses didn't even go in to the promised land. But God raised up another deliverer. God raised up Joshua and they finally get into the promised land. And as you are going into the Old Testament, you see this history unfold. And here's, here's kind of the pattern. Here's, here's what takes place. There's this idea of complacency. There's this idea of what what, what I would call misplaced priorities. Misplaced priorities that lead to passivity, that leads to neglect, that leads to undesired consequences. Misplaced priorities that lead to passivity, that leads to neglect, that leads to undesired consequences. And that's the history of the nation of Israel. And so as you get into further into the Old Testament, After the nation of Israel gets into the promised land, then they start, they they want a king. They want to be like the other nations all around them. And so they want a king. So God gives them a king. God warns them before he gives them a king through the prophet. He warns them and says, look, look, I know you want a king. And I know you want to be like the nations all around you. You want to be like the world all around you. But I'm telling you, if I give you a king, here's what a king's going to do. He's going to tax you. He's going to take your money. He's going to send your young men out to war and they're going to die. So go ahead. You can have what you want. And that's what God does. God gives us what we want. And if if we don't want him and we don't want him as king in our life and and we want to go our own way, that is a form of God's judgment. He lets us go to experience the consequences of our own choices. And this is the the history of the nation of Israel. And it culminates into the book of Kings. We get to 1 Kings chapter 12 and you have Solomon who was In the beginning of 1 Kings, he was ruling and reigning, but he became wicked and he became perverse and he married hundreds of different wives and, and because of the hundreds of different wives from different parts of the world that worshiped different gods, then paganism came back into the people of God. And as a result, the nation ends up splitting to the north and to the south. To the north was Samaria and was Israel and to the south was Jerusalem and Judah. And so you have a divided kingdom. That's what happens it's, pass, it's, it's passivity that leads to, it's wrong priorities, it leads to passivity, it leads to neglect, it leads to undesired consequences, and you have a divided kingdom. And then, and then you get to this point right here. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that Israel would be overtaken by foreign lands. And what ends up happening is that in the north, the Assyrians, they come and they attack the northern kingdom and they take captive they take captive the northern kingdom. And in the south, the Babylonians come and they take captive of the southern kingdom. And we see this in Second Kings chapter 17. This is, this is what happened. And I'm only going to read this one section in Second Kings to describe to you what happened and why it happened. It's so very clear. Listen to Second Kings. This is what happens. In the ninth year of hashia the king of Assyria captured Samaria and he carried the Israelites away to Assyria and placed them in Halah and on the Habor, the river of Gozan, and in the the cities of the Medes. So they were taken captive. The northern kingdom in Samaria was taken captive by the Assyrians. And verse 7 tells us, and further tells us why it happened. Here's why it happened. And this occurred because the people of Israel had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of the land of Egypt and under the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and had feared other gods, and walked in the customs of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel, and in the customs that, that the Lord warned Israel and Judah by every prophet and every seer, saying, turn from your evil ways, and keep my commandments and statutes in accordance with all the law that I commanded your fathers, and that I sent to you by my servants, the prophets, but they would not listen. They wouldn't listen to God's word. They would not stay connected to the source of truth in their life. They rejected God's word. They would not listen, but were stubborn as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false And they followed the nations that were around them concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they should not do like them. Wow, this happened because they pushed themselves away from God's word. They pushed themselves away from God's commandments. What did it say there in 2 Kings 17? They didn't just push themselves away. They despised his word. They despised his commands and his statutes. And what do you think is going to happen when you despise God's word in your life? You leave yourself open for captivity. You leave yourself open for the enemy to come and take you captive in your life. 2 Kings 25 describes the capture of Jerusalem and the destruction ultimately of the house of the Lord as well as the walls of Jerusalem. So there you have it. At the end of 2 Kings, we have 17 and 25. The north is overtaken by Assyria. The south is overtaken by Babylon. And now the house of God is destroyed. The house of God is in rubble. And now... The walls of Jerusalem, the protection of the city, is broken down. Why? Because they despised the word of God. They despised the word of God. The word of God. And here's the title of the message here this morning. When God's word collects dust. When God's word collects dust. The word of God was collecting dust in the hearts of God's people. They had closed off their hearts and affections for God's commands and his ways. And they were experiencing the consequences of their choices but when we are faithless he remains faithful it's the history of the nation of israel but that's the history of god's interaction with them there's always hope god stirs the heart of the king of persia cyrus to send god's people back from exile into jerusalem to rebuild god's house listen to this this is amazing god can do whatever he wants when he wants to even in captivity god has not abandoned his people Even when they despise his words and his commands, he doesn't abandon us. He wants us to return. He wants us to return to him. Listen to what God did. Ezra chapter 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord the God of Israel, who he is the God who is in Jerusalem. So led by Joshua and Zerubbabel, they go back. They go back to Jerusalem. The exiles, a portion of the exiles go back to Jerusalem. A portion of the exiles from the north go back to Jerusalem, and they rebuild the temple. And in Ezra chapter 6, we see that the temple is dedicated. You know what's interesting? Go read Ezra 6 when you get home. It's interesting. When the temple is dedicated, there's great joy in the dedication in the temple, but then there's great sorrow there's great sorrow because there was people who were around from the original dedication of the, temp- of the temple when the presence of the Lord dwelt there. And the temple was rebuilt, but there was no presence. There was nothing there, and so there was celebration, but then there was a remnant of people who looked into the temple of God that was rededicated, and they wept and they wailed because it wasn't like what it was when it was originally dedicated So we see the dedication in in chapter 6. And then here's an interesting switch here. In chapter 7, Ezra chapter 7, God raises up Ezra, who is a priest, who is an expert in the law of God. And he gets sent by the Persian king to go to Jerusalem to bring the law of God and begin to teach the people of God the word of God again. Why? Why? Because they had despised the word of God. This is why they were in exile. They rejected God's word and his commands and they had gone after other gods and that's why they were exiled. But God sends them back in his mercy. God sends him back, them back in his grace and they rebuild the temple, but they need the word of God to birth that revival. So God sends Ezra back in Ezra chapter seven and he begins to teach the word of God to God's people. So you want revival here today? The beginnings of revival must have as its foundation the teaching of God's word. That's where revival starts. That's where revival is maintained. If we want to stay in a state of revival, a state of being alive for the Lord and passionate for the Lord, it has as its foundation the teaching of God's word. And Ezra stayed there for 14 years, plowing the ground, teaching the word, plowing the ground, teaching the word to a group of hard-hearted Israelites who had rebelled against God, who had despised his word, and he's teaching, and he's teaching, and he's teaching. Revival is a return to the heart of God. And God's heart is most clearly revealed through his word. So 14 years later, after Ezra has been plowing and teaching God's word, God raises up a cupbearer whose name is Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And Nehemiah, he hears reports that the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. He hears that, that, that Israel, yes, they have a new temple and it's rededicated and Ezra's there teaching the law and they're starting to live the festivals again and abide by God's laws. But he realizes that their, their, that their city, their, their, their land is open for attack. And he feels a burden. And he wants to, the walls to be rebuilt. And so he gets sent with finances and with men and, and with resources to go and rebuild. And, and after much work, to much opposition, you can read into Nehemiah chapter, uh, uh, chapter 1 through 7. The walls are completed. And then we get to Nehemiah chapter 8. Actually, Nehemiah 7, 73b. And then we're going to read the first three verses of chapter 8. Then we get to this culmination. You guys follow me? You guys track me with that whole history there? So here's where, here's where we're at. The people had rebelled against God. they have been thrown into exile because they had despised God's word. God begins a revival in the heart of God's people by moving a pagan king. And he feels compelled to go build a house for another God, for another people says, go back to your homeland and build your house. Build God a house. And then Nehemiah goes back. But in between, Ezra's there plowing the ground, teaching the word, teaching the word. And revival is brewing. Revival is brewing. Revival is brewing because God's word is being exalted. We get to Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 73. Listen to this. And when the seventh month had come, the people of Israel were in their towns. And all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. The water gate was the place where, the only place in Jerusalem where pure, clean water was found. They were next to the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra, the priest, brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard. And on the first day of the seventh month, he read it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand, and the ears of all the people were. Was there a despising? No, why? Because Ezra had been plowing. Because Ezra had been teaching. Go read through Ezra. Ezra had been working to teach God's word. And you get to Nehemiah chapter eight. I don't don't know if you catch this. Think about this. He says, That says there, Nehemiah, that they asked Ezra, hey, Ezra, go get the book of the law. He gets the book of the law. And we're going to see some details as we go on later in this series of what they did when they got the book and how he read it. But go get the book, Ezra, and read it. Read the book of the law. He read it from sunrise till midday, 6 a.m. to noon. It's 1120. You going to give me a few more hours? What do y'all want to eat for supper tonight? right? Think about the contrast. Think about what had taken place. They had despised. You saw it in 2 Kings 17. They had despised the word of God. And and in 2 Kings, it says that the captivity happened because they did not want to obey God's law. And now they're back from exile. They're in Jerusalem. And now it says that they listened to the word of God being read for six hours. And it says that they were attentive. My brothers and my sisters, that is revival. That's revival. I'm not saying you got to preach six hour long messages for there to be revival. But I'm telling you, that is revival. Revival took place. The hearts of God's people were turned back to God. And the source of that turning back to God was the teaching of God's word. When God's word collects dust in my heart and in your heart, we are furthest away from revival than we ever want to be. They turned. God's house was rebuilt. The walls of Jerusalem are restored. And now the most important element is being returned to its rightful place of highest priority. So here's what we want to do in this message. I'm going to conclude with these three points. I got the bulk of my message is my conclusion. I want to conclude with this. What do we learn from this history of the nation of Israel, that will be a launch pad for us into the rest of this series. What do we learn from this? Here's what I want us to learn from this history of Israel leading up to Nehemiah 8. We, we should learn this, that when God's word collects dust, we disconnect ourselves from knowing him. When God's word collects dust, we disconnect ourselves from knowing him. You cannot know God if you don't know his word. The Bible is the word of God. It is his self-revelation. He has revealed himself to us through scripture. Look at what 2 Timothy 3.16 says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness. The King James Version translates it like this. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So the Bible is not just mere words of men. It is the very breathed out, inspired words of God. These are holy words. This is why this moment here when we open the Bible when we read it, we teach it, we explain it. This is why this is a sacred time because it's not Ben Bufkin talking. It is God's word speaking. And when we read scripture, when we teach scripture, when we explain scripture, that is what we're after because we, we want to hear God's voice speaking and this is how he has chosen to reveal himself to us Hebrews 4 12 for the word of God is what it's alive it's living it's active it's sharper than a two-edged sword it pierces into our heart and it divides and it separates and it exposes us why does it have the power to do that Because it is God's very own words. Revival starts and is continued whenever we connect ourselves to the very living words of God. This is why we're Living Word Church. This is why we are Living Word Church, because we are connected to the living word. If someone says they know God, but they don't know the scriptures, or they don't read the scriptures, they don't know God. They have an idea about what God might be. And actually, that's a that's a principle. That we understand through Scripture that there is a general revelation of God. That's what Romans chapter 1 says. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for His, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, created, so that they, they are without excuse. So humanity is without excuse for living as if God does not exist. Why? Because only a fool would say in his heart, there's no God, right? I drove in this morning down Savannah Road, and I'm looking at the clouds. I'm looking at the sunrise. The sun is beautiful. Off to my right as I'm coming towards 311, and I just thought to myself, how beautiful you are, God. How beautiful your creation is. Only a fool would say, there's no God look at creation it declares and this is what a general revelation is psalms psalms 19 talks about that the creation declares it declares it speaks that the of the beauty of god it shouts it out and a lot of people a lot more intelligent than me could get up here and tell you of the of the the complexities of creation to show you the beauty of god that's called general revelation but God doesn't leave us with just general, general revelation. He gives us special, or you could say specific, revelation. And that's through the Word of God, and that's through His Son, Jesus Christ. And that's specific, special revelation. Look at what John 1 says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. The darkness has not overcome it. And listen to this, verse 14. And the word became special, specific revelation. It's not just general revelation. I can look around, and I can see that there's a God. But God says, no, for I so loved the world that I gave my one and only son. God says, I'm going to to demonstrate who I am to the world by coming and becoming flesh. Special revelation. God's word reveals who he is. And so if we allow the word of God to collect dust in our life, we disconnect ourselves from knowing who God is. This is how God has revealed himself to us. Theologian Richard Mayhew says this in his book, Biblical Doctrine. The scriptures reveal to man the mind of God, the ways of God, The righteousness of God and the means by which man might please him. It is superior to general revelation because it is specific and verbal. It is a written revelation from God through his apostles and prophets. And is thereby a lasting and forever settled witness to an unchanging God. We must stay connected to the truth of God's word so we can know God and understand him. So what is God's word? Just a short overview. What does God's word say about who he is? God is creator. In the beginning, God did what? Created the heavens and the earth. God is lawgiver. You see it in Exodus. God brings the Ten Commandments. He's lawgiver. God is father. God is son. God is Holy Spirit. Think about at creation. You have God the father at creation. You have the son as we read in John chapter one who created all, nothing was made that was made without Jesus making it. Is what it said in John one. And then it says in Genesis that the spirit did what? hovered over the waters you have the trinity in creation then at jesus's baptism you have the trinity you have god the father speaking down about jesus saying this is my beloved son in whom i am well pleased you have jesus in the flesh and then where was the holy spirit he was descending like a dove and resting on top of jesus god the father god the son God the Holy Spirit. We see it in Scripture. Scripture reveals this, reveals to us to who God is. He is a trinity. He is one, but he is three in one, three distinct persons. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Then we Then we get more personal. God is our shepherd. Psalm 23 says this, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Word of God tells us that about him. God is our rock. Deuteronomy 32, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock, His work is perfect. God is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6 says this. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. God is our peace. That's what scripture tells us. Isaiah 26, 3, you keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you. He is the source of our peace. God is our healer and God is our salvation. And I could go on and on for six hours at the Watergate telling you all the things that scripture reveals about who God is. This is what you get when you stay connected to the truth of God's Word. You know Him. If you know the Word, you know the Lord. If you don't know the Word, you don't know the Lord. If you think you know the Lord and you think you're worshiping Him in truth, but you don't connect yourself to the Word, you, you might not be worshiping the true God. You might be worshiping a God of your own creation. We're called to worship in spirit and, that's that's what that means, spirit and right understanding of who God is. When God's word collects dust in your life, you disconnect yourself from knowing and understanding him. This is what Israel did throughout their history, and we see this as the beginning step in a downward spiral. To know God, we must know his word. And to worship God correctly, we must know his word. It's the beginning step. This disconnection is the beginning step of exile. It's the beginning step of a downward spiral. What's the second thing? This next step that takes place. This is the second thing we must learn from the history of Israel. Is that when God's word collects dust, we lose our moral compass. So not only can we not understand who God is, because this is the way he's decided to reveal himself to us, we, we, we begin to lose our moral compass because we're disconnected from absolute truth, from objective biblical morality. If we disconnect ourselves, if God's word collects dust in our heart, we begin to lose our moral compass. Is that not what happened with Israel? They lost their moral compass and they went after foreign gods. They, they, they intermarried with foreign nations. Sexual immorality was rampant. And they worship false idols. They worship uh, idols of trees and, 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 and plants and, and animals. And they made golden calves. And they, th- this is their history. They lost their moral compass. This is inevitable. This is the inevitable result of disconnecting yourself from God's word. People who marginalize God's word in their life, people who do not continually put God's word in front of their eyes, will have a hard time discerning the right path to walk. You know, there's a powerful section in Psalms 119 I want to read that talks about how God's word gives us the right path to walk. Listen to this. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers. Your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the old and the aged, for I keep your precepts i hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. When you stay connected to God's word, you have a moral compass. You have a lamp for your feet and a light for your path. And when you're living your life, As a believer and you're staying connected to God's word, the light shines on the path. You have a a decision to make. Say yes to this or no to this. And the word of God brings revelation into your life. And you know, no, walk this way. Say no to this, say yes to that. God's word begins to be a lamp into your feet and a light to your path. So I, I, I want to tell you an encouraging story that really ministered to my heart. I was cooking a jambalaya last week. And that's encouraging cooking jambalaya. If you like my jambalaya, I like to cook jambalaya. It's cooking jambalaya in the garage back there. And Jason Gianda was in there with me. Who knows who Jason Gianda is? I love Jason Gianda. And Jason Gianda was back there and we're just sitting there talking and he's talking about things going on in his life. And we just started to reminisce about a situation in his life. And it just reminded me of the power of hearing God's word. And allowing God's word to be first placed in your life and what can take place. So Jason, on April 26, 2016, I was not the pastor of Living Word Church. My office was down that hallway, and we were doing a video series for the men that night, and Jason was put in my group, my small group. And I remember Jason, I had known Jason previously, and he had came into my office. And he just looked terrible. He, he, he's, he's shorter than me, but he was about as skinny as I am. And that's skinny for him. He had lost a lot of weight. And he looked down. He looked really bad. He just looked like he had lost hope. And I remember I looked at him. And these are the words I said. I said, Jason, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And he tells me later while we're, I'm cooking that gumbo last week, he says, Pastor Ben, You'll never know what that meant. That simple phrase, you're going to be okay. He said, I had several other people that day come up and tell me, Jason, you're going to be okay. You're going to be okay. And you know what happened? He was okay. He was better than okay. What did Jason do? He submitted himself to the truth of God's word. And I have seen in his life, he has, he has a hunger for God's word and a hunger for God's truth. He's listening. I hear him listening to messages throughout the day. Jason works here now at, at Living Word Church. Mr. Leverence retired as the building manager uh, last year. And Jason, re, he replaced Mr. Leverence. And so I get to see Jason throughout the day. And, and, and he is just, he loves God, loves his word. And God brought him, brought him a wonderful, God-fearing wife, Carla. And I just was so encouraged to see the power of God's word in someone's life. And I wanted to celebrate that. So let's thank God for God's work in Jason G- Gianda. He's not here this morning. He said he might be watching live stream, but Carla... But Carla is here. And I asked him be, be, before he left. I said, Jason, is it Gianda or Gianda? He said it was Gionda. Is that correct, Carla? Kind of, maybe. <laughs> the word of God reveals to us God's righteous requirements. As we expose ourselves to the truths of scripture, we are held accountable for the knowledge that we gain. And so we want to be like Jason. I want to be like Jason in my life. I want to be like, be like the person who says I'm going to connect myself to God's word. And when I connect myself to God's word, I can know who he is. And I can have a moral compass in my life to tell me how I should live, what decisions I should make. But the opposite of that is what is scary. Listen to Judges 17:6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's the opposite of submitting to God's word, doing what's right in your own eyes. And you lose a moral compass when you disconnect yourself from God's truth and you begin to be a God unto yourself. We live in a world today that the idea of moral absolutes is almost non-existent. The only absolutes that are celebrated today are the absolutes that fit your own agenda. People want to rewrite the Bible because it's authoritative. People want to rewrite the Constitution because it's authoritative. They want to rewrite anything that tends to want to bring authority or tell them how they should live or what they should do. They want to do away with it. They don't want any absolute truth in their life. Remember? Remember, say King 17, but they would not listen, but were stubborn. They despised his statutes and his covenant. That's what happened. And so as a result, you lose a moral compass. The world's standards of morality had influenced the people of God and it led to their exile. That's that downward spiral. Disconnect yourself from God's word. You disconnect yourself from knowing him. You disconnect yourself from God's word and you lose, you begin to lose your moral compass and then you're in exile. And then, and then, and then you don't know right from wrong and where to go and what to do and the people of God had, influenced, had been influenced by the world's standards. A church that tolerates immorality and adopts the lawless practices of the world, will lose its ability to make any impact for the kingdom of God. A church that tolerates immorality, Christians who tolerate immorality, and adopt the lawless practices of the world, will lose its ability to make any impact for the kingdom of God. You remember in Revelation, God's seven letters, seven letters to the seven churches? I want to read this section from the church to Ephesus, Revelation 2. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. They needed a a revival at, at Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, what will happen? I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. And that's what will happen That's what can never happen in our life. For the life of our church, we must stay connected to God's word. It is our necessity. It is a necessity so that we can know who he is, so that we can have a moral compass to to decipher between right and wrong in this world, so we can know the ways in which we should walk. But when God's word collects dust and we go down that downward spiral, we risk the chance in our life personally and in the church as a whole that God would say, you know what? Because you look just like the world, no more lampstand. No more light. You've abandoned the right to shine a light for me because you don't look like me. You look like the world. May that never be. Here's the last thing that we learn, and this is, for me, the most sobering thing. This is the one that really touches my heart, that when God's word collects dust, our children are left unprotected. When God's word collects dust, our children are left unprotected. This is a sobering reminder. It's that downward spiral. Disconnect yourself from God's word like Israel did. You lose your moral compass and then then the next generation is left to fend for themselves in the craziness of our world. Our pursuit of God and his word, our commitment to prioritizing biblical truth in our life has great impact into the next generation or our lack thereof has great impact into the next generation. Our kids are being inundated, hear me. Our kids are being inundated with messages about morality everywhere they turn. And the world wants to say, we're not about morality. We're not about right or wrong, you'd live whatever you want to do, but they are about morality. They're about their own morality and pushing that version of morality on our kids. I challenge you. If your teenagers are on Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, YouTube, TikTok, whatever those apps are, if your kids are on there, I challenge you. Your your younger kids, preteen, teenagers, go go look. Just take a day, however long you can handle it, and just do some searches at what your kids can possibly look at and listen to on social media. It's appalling. I'm gonna tell you something. And I thought about whether I was going to say this or not. but I think it needs to be said because it's true. And God's word is true. And let every man be a liar. But I was in my, in my living room the other day. And one of my kids had a phone. And they had YouTube kids. YouTube kids. So I'm watching. What was I watching? I don't know what I was watching. I was watching something on the TV, the big TV, the big tube. And I'm not paying attention. I, I hear things going on from that, the, the, the device that they're watching. And I hear this phrase from a child's voice on that phone. And the child, the girl, said this. She said on that phone, a kid, she said, Well, I identify as a lesbian. And so my ears went, what, what, what's, what's going on? Joel, what are you watching? I, I wasn't supposed to say Joel. Did I say Joel? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Joel. Joel. <laughs> As you, you can believe whatever you want to believe about sexuality and what you believe is right or not right. But as a believer in Jesus Christ, I believe that God gets to make the rules about what sexuality is meant to be. And so in my home, in my home, I don't want my kids hearing messages about people having the right to identify however they want to identify. And I just want to tell you, the messages are out there. And this is a result and if we're not careful if we're not if we're not vigilant if we're not connected to God's word our children will be will become impacted if we if we are not connected to knowing who God is and we and we and if we and if we don't know him and his ways in our mind because of his word then we lose our sense of moral compass then our kids are affected and they're left vulnerable to just go there there, there is no firm place for our kids to stand anymore and it is so grieving to me it's so hard for me to think about the future of my grandkids if the Lord tarries. Where is there going to be anywhere solid to stand in this world today? And that's why the church must have a revival of God's word. we got to preach God's word to God's people so that our kids can have something to stand on. I'm sorry, I'm getting preachy and angry all at the same time. Our children need to understand the basic foundations of morality. And they're not getting any help from the culture. All right, I'm done with that. So how do we approach such a big responsibility as parents, as grandparents, as pastors and youth pastors and How do we approach this responsibility? Deuteronomy 6 tells us, in these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Don't despise God's word. Let God's word be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as the frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. So how do you do it? It's really clearly. Talk to them when you sit in your house. You all sit in your house, don't you? Talk about the word of God there. When you walk by the way, walk your kids around the block, talk to them about the Lord. When you lie down, you're going to bed with your kids, you're laying them down, you give giving them a kiss, you're praying for them, talk to them about the Lord and his word. When you rise up, When you're on your way to school and you're five minutes late and you're trying to get there in a hurry, talk about the Lord. Teach them diligently every single day. Because the truth is this. Here's what can happen. I'm not going to read the whole section there, but let's go to Judges chapter 2. Let's just read the whole section. When Joshua dismissed the people, the people of Israel went each to his his inheritance to take possession of the land. The people served the Lord all the days of Joshua. Joshua. In the days of the elders who outlived Joshua who had seen all the great work the, that the Lord had done and Joshua the son of Nun the servant of the Lord died and they buried him in the hill country north of the mountain of Gash and all that generation was gathered to their fathers and there arose another generation after them who didn't have a solid foundation who didn't have a faith that was passed down to them who had family members who who despise the word of God. Because that's the history of Israel. We know it. We read it. They did. And this generation after them, they, 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 they grew up and they did not know the Lord. Or the work that had been done for Israel. So Nehemiah 8 is about revival. And I'm convinced. I want revival like, like, like the next man. Like every pastor wants Revival. But I believe revival starts right here. This is the foundation of re- revival. This is why we teach the Bible here. Because we want revival. We want God to move in the hearts in our hearts so that we'll be awakened to his truth so that we will shine his lights. I want to end with this quote. It's by John Wesley. God used him to stir a great revival look what he says i want to know one thing the way to heaven how to stand how to land safe on that happy shore god himself has condescended to teach us that way for this very end he came from heaven and he has written it down in a book oh give me that book at any price give me the book of god I have it. Here is knowledge enough for me. Let me be a man of one book. Amen. Stand to your feet with me. Let me be a man. Let me be, let us be men and women of one book. God, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this sobering reminder here today of the necessity of your word. God, may uh, may we not be foolish and forget the past as revealed in your word of how God's people neglected your word, despised your word, and suffered the consequences. May we always remember that we're not that far away from that, that we must be diligent, as it said in, in Deuteronomy 6. We must hear your word, read your word, teach your word, live your word. May we be people of the book. God, we don't worship the Bible. God, we worship you as you've revealed yourself in the Bible. These are your words. That's why they're sacred. This is your heart. That's why we love it. God, may we never lose our desire for you to know you more. God, thank you for your people here today. Lord, bless them as they go home today. As they're with their kids around the the dinner table, I pray that they would talk about you and your works and what you've done in their life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. I love you. See you next week.